Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Aurora Lee. Elizabeth Barrett Browning was one of the most famous and most admired female poets of the 19th century. She was the oldest of 11 children and grew up in a family that was very well-to-do, having profited from a slave plantation in the West Indies. From an early age, she was an avid reader, and her parents encouraged her studies. She was a child poet with great poetic ambitions. She aspired to become no less than the feminine of Homer. Because of her family's wealth and her parents' encouragement, she was able to become very well educated. She studied Greek, which was virtually unheard of for women of the Victorian era. Remember that women typically only studied modern languages and sometimes a bit of Latin, but almost never Greek. At the age of 15, Elizabeth Barrett began to suffer from a mysterious illness that rendered her a semi-invalid for much of her life, an illness that has not been diagnosed by modern medicine in the way that many past literary and historical figures' illnesses have. She was prescribed opium at a young age, and this resulted in a number of physical problems throughout her life, making her a recluse. Later, she suffered from lung ailments. They seemed to run in her family and ultimately died from what was probably tuberculosis. During her recluse years, she spent her days on a couch in a London house with the windows shut tight to keep out the dirty London air. When she was about 40, Robert Browning wrote her a fan letter, as I mentioned when we looked at Robert's poetry, and began a correspondence with her that led to a love affair, and the pair eloped to Italy. Because of the milder Italian climate, her health improved significantly. In fact, she had a son to Robert at the age of 43, so Italy did her a great deal of good indeed. Both of the Brownings loved Italy. Robert was fascinated by characters from Italian history and art, often using some of them as subjects for his poetry, and Elizabeth Barrett Browning, or EBB as she is often called, was also drawn to Italian subjects. EBB wrote a cycle of sonnets that are probably second only to Shakespeare's in their fame. These are called Sonnets from the Portuguese, and are a series of love poems she wrote to her husband, Robert. He wanted to publish them, but she was reluctant, so he suggested the title From the Portuguese to imply that the poems are a translation. This strategy helped to overcome her shyness about them, and they have been exceptionally popular ever since. Aurora Lee is a remarkable poem, Almost an epic, it is often referred to as a novel in verse. It combines a number of different conventions, including the epic and the popular sensation novel. Written in blank verse, it has a female poetess as a narrator, and some critics liken it to a feminine version of Wordsworth's prelude. It is panoramic, with scenes in both Italy and England, and it draws upon the so-called Corinne myth referring to Madame de Stael's 1807 novel, Corinne, or Italy, about a female poet in Italy who is rejected in love. 
Barrett Browning reverses the situation and the outcome of Madame de Stael's novel by having her artistic heroine do the rejecting, and also by succeeding both romantically and artistically in the end, able to achieve the compromise between love and art that eluded de Stael's heroine. In addition to Corinne, Aurora Lee also owes a great deal to Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, as we will see. In the first book of the verse novel, we are introduced to the main character. Aurora is the only child of an Italian mother and English father, who returns to England after her mother's death at four and her father's death at thirteen, to live with her father's maiden sister in Dover. Aurora sees herself as a wild bird brought to her cage. Her aunt hated Aurora's mother for taking her brother to Italy, would not permit Aurora to speak Italian, and taught her a smattering of various subjects, trivial facts, needlework, and feminine submission. Let's look at a few descriptions from the first book that capture the spirit and style of Barrett Browning's work. Here is her description of her first sight of England as a child, which begins in the first book around line 250 or so. Then land, then England. Oh, the frosty cliffs looked cold upon me. Could I find a home among those mean red houses through the fog? And when I heard my father's language first from alien lips which had no kiss for mine, I wept aloud, then laughed, then wept, then wept, and someone near me said the child was mad through much seasickness. The train swept us on. Was this my father's England, the great isle? The ground seemed cut up from the fellowship of verdure, field from field, as man from man. The skies themselves looked low and positive, as almost you could touch them with a hand and dared to do it. They were so far off from God's celestial crystals, all things blurred and dull and vague. Did Shakespeare and his mates absorb the light here? Not a hill or stone with heart to strike a radiant color up or active outline on the indifferent air. I think I see my father's sister stand upon the hall step of her country house to give me welcome. She stood straight and calm, her somewhat narrow forehead braided tight as if for taming accidental thoughts from possible pulses, brown hair pricked with gray by frigid use of life. She was not old, although my father's elder by a year. A nose drawn sharply, yet in delicate lines, a close, mild mouth, a little soured about the ends, through speaking unrequited loves, or peradventure niggardly half-truths. Eyes of no color, once they might have smiled, but never, never have forgot themselves in smiling. Cheeks in which was yet a rose of perished summers, like a rose in a book, kept more for Ruth than pleasure, if past bloom, past fading also. She had lived, we'll say, a harmless life she called a virtuous life, a quiet life, which was not life at all, but that she had not lived enough to know between the vicar and the county squires. End quote. 
A few lines later, Aurora gives this memorable description of her aunt. She had lived a sort of cage bird life, born in a cage, accounting that to leap from perch to perch was act and joy enough for any bird. Dear heaven, how silly are the things that live in thickets and eat berries. I, alas, a wild bird, scarcely fledged, was brought to her cage, and she was there to meet me. Very kind. Bring the clean water. Give out the fresh seed. End quote. Those last lines, she was there to meet me, very kind, bring the clean water, give out the fresh seed, are almost Byronic in their sarcasm. Later in the first book, Aurora finds her father's books packed up in the attic and spends much of her time reading them and educating herself. We'll look now at a few excerpts from book two. This takes place on her 20th birthday. Aurora is out early in the morning of her birthday in the open air as she says, To fly my fancies in the open air and keep my birthday till my aunt awoke to stop good dreams, end quote. She has been studying poetry and, deciding to crown herself as a poet, is looking for something suitable to crown herself with. Not the bay, she says, referring to the laurel. Apollo, the god associated with poetry, wore a wreath of laurel leaves, and she decides that would be too presumptuous a choice. Myrtle, she decides, is too much associated with love, and verbena too fragrant, so she finally settles on ivy. Standing there, having just laid a little wreath of twisted ivy onto her head, Aurora suddenly realizes she is not alone, and she's being watched by her cousin, Romney. I stood there fixed, my arms up like the caryatid, soul of some abolished temple, helplessly persistent in a gesture which derides a former purpose, end quote. Karyatids were the stone figures of women used as architectural columns. Aurora's cousin Romney mentions that he has found a book of poetry by the stream. It has Greek written in the margins. Ladies Greek without the accents, he says, referring to the fact that women who wrote in Greek apparently did not usually write the accent marks. The pair have a discussion about gender roles that is a famous part of the poem. Initially, they speak of Romney's view that poetry is not an appropriate subject for women, and in fact poetry during much of the 19th century was regarded as a more masculine literary form. Women were probably more associated with novels. Romney argues that women can't really be poets and this evolves into an argument about women's differences in cognitive ability from men's. This is actually an argument that we've seen before when we read Hannah More during the Romantic period. Aurora's cousin Romney is speaking here. There it is. You play beside a deathbed like a child, yet measure to yourself a prophet's place to teach the living. None of all these things can women understand. You generalize, oh, nothing, not even grief. Your quick-breathed hearts, so sympathetic to the personal pang, close on each separate knife stroke, yielding up a whole life at each wound, incapable of deepening, widening a large lap of life 
to hold the world full woe. The human race to you means such a child or such a man. You saw one morning waiting in the cold beside that gate, perhaps. You gather up a few such cases, and when strong, sometimes will write of factories and of slaves as if your father were a Negro and your son a spinner in the mills. All's yours, and you, all colored with your blood or otherwise just nothing to you. Why, I call you hard to general suffering. Here's the world, half blind with intellectual light, half brutalized with civilization, having caught the plague in silks from Tarsus, shrieking east and west along a thousand railroads, mad with pain and sin too. Does one woman of you all, you who weep easily, grow pale to see this tiger shake his cage? Does one of you stand still from dancing, stop from stringing pearls and pine and die because of the great sum of universal anguish? Show me a tear wet as Cordelia's in eyes bright as yours because the world is mad. You cannot count that you should weep for this account, not you. You weep for what you know." A red-haired child, sick in a fever, if you touch him once, though but so little as with a fingertip, will set you weeping. But a million sick, you could as soon weep for the rule of three or compound fractions. Therefore, this same world, uncomprehended by you, must remain uninfluenced by you. Women as you are mere women, personal and passionate. You give us doting mothers and chaste wives, sublime Madonnas and enduring saints. We get no Christ from you, and verily we shall not get a poet in my mind. End quote. Romney's argument here, as we saw in Hannah More, is that women are only capable of a personalized perception of pain or grief. They can see it in the people around them or someone they touch, but they are not capable of comprehending the miseries of the world as a whole. This is related to this doctrine of public and private spheres. The woman's domain is the private sphere, nursing a sick child, for example, but they can't think about the world's suffering. As he builds up to this, Romney concludes, You give us doting mothers and chaste wives, sublime Madonnas, and enduring saints. We get no Christ from you. In other words, what he's saying is you're not going to save the world. This is a key argument in support of this ideology of separate spheres for males and females. Shortly after this, in the same encounter, Romney proposes marriage to Aurora, perhaps a questionable way for him to work his way into her affections. For his part, Romney is very idealistic and would like to save the world. In this scene that is almost a carbon copy of a scene in Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, between Jane and her cousin Sinjin Rivers, we learn that what Romney really wants is for Aurora Lee to be his wife so that the two can save the world together. Not the right approach for a woman like Aurora Lee. She says, What you love is not a woman, Romney, but a cause. You want a helpmate, not a mistress, sir, a wife to help your ends, in her no end. Your cause is noble, your ends excellent, but I, being most unworthy of these and that, do otherwise conceive of love. Farewell. 
Farewell, Aurora, you reject me thus? He said, Why, sir, you are married long ago. You have a wife already whom you love. Your social theory, bless you both, I say. So you jest. Nay, so I speak in earnest, I replied. You treat of marriage too much like at least a chief apostle. You would bear with you a wife, a sister. Shall we speak it out? A sister of charity. End quote. Again, this is basically the same counter-argument that Jane Eyre uses against St. John Rivers. This rejection of Romney is the central event of the second book of the poem. Later books take Aurora to London. Among other things, she learns of her cousin's abortive wedding to a poor woman named Marion Earl. On her way to Italy, Aurora travels through Paris, where she meets the unfortunate Marion, now completely destitute, a poor seamstress. Marion had planned to marry Romney for philanthropic reasons, which is what he really wanted from a wife, but she had never appeared at the wedding. It turns out that a rival for Romney's affections had had Marion kidnapped and taken to a brothel in Paris, where she was drugged, raped, and turned loose on the streets as a harlot. She subsequently gave birth to a child, whom she delights in, and sees as someone stolen from a purer home with God. She sees the child as compensation for her degradation. Aurora is sympathetic to Marion's plight and tries to help her. Later, when the action moves to Italy, Romney arrives in Florence, and when he learns of Marion's story, Romney offers to marry her, but she refuses him. Something else that has happened to Romney in the meantime is that he has been blinded in a fire, again very reminiscent of Jane Eyre. Eventually, Romney and Aurora reassess their discussion from her 20th birthday. He has changed his view in many respects. He admits he has been wrong about his social program and her success as a poet. She now accepts him, and unlike the tragic Corinne in Madame de Stael's novel, Aurora attains happiness. And also unlike the artist figure in Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott, with whom she is sometimes compared, Aurora achieves a compromise between life and art and has her rebirth as a poet. <laughs>